We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings big ideas, big science from the small island of Tasmania. And this week we are definitely talking about a science topic, so I hope you're ready to be wowed. My name's Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Hannah McCleary today. And I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we were recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita. And I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So today we're joined by Associate Professor Cara Barry, who we recently had the pleasure of featuring in our Diversity in STEM gallery, which you can check out by going to diversitystem.com with two M's, S-T-E-M-M. So that was a Science Week based celebration of the various types of people that are actually responsible for the amazing achievements in science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine in the state. And um, it was wonderful to feature Cara because Cara is one of the first people that I remember interviewing for That's What I Call Science. And Hannah, do you want to introduce Cara in a bit more detail? Yeah, thanks, Neve. So Cara Barry is an associate professor and lecturer in plant pathology at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture at the University of Tasmania. Cara has held a number of research positions and her current research is on the interactions between plants and fungi. Um, So Cara, to start off with, um, I believe you're researching the relationships between fungi and plants in horticultural crops. So could you tell us a little bit about this, including what horticultural crops are for people who may not know? Okay, so horticulture is um, a term for... um, plants that are propagated, um, generally high-value plants. So we're not talking about broad-acre farming like growing cereals or cotton. We're talking more about high-value crops. It could be vegetables. It could be perennial crops like um, raspberries, other sort of perennial things, apples, cherries. And, yeah, fungi are interacting with all organisms on the planet. That's really interesting so that you're looking at the role of fang- fungi and how it links to plants. So when we think about fungi and its relationship to plants, one, what are you looking at? But two, like, does that mean you're mostly focusing on soil or fungi throughout the whole plant? So okay. what areas are you focusing on? So in terms of fungal interactions with plants, I'm, I'm focusing on pretty much all the different types. Oh, so wow, cool. over the last 20 years or so, I've been able to... Um, I guess, answer or help answer problems that come from a range of those different interactions. So, for example, at the moment I have a project on um, a root rot pathogen called Phytothracinomomai infecting native pepper, which is a native species but has been grown in sort of plantation or horticulture type of situation. Um, So there's a um, a soil-based fungus. I'm also at the moment working on... um, a rust fungus in blueberry and that's an issue because it's a new species to Tasmania. It's a quarantine risk. So they're examples of bad guys, I suppose, but I have also worked on beneficial fungi too. So in the soil, we have mycorrhizal fungi which interact with the plant by forming associations with plant roots. They help the plant to take up water, nutrients and so on and the plant returns to the fungal partners some sugars. So that's a benefit 
benefit. And then a, a, another type of example of a beneficial would be trichoderma species. They are fungi that grow and outcompete other fungi. So that's good when they're outcompeting a pathogen and they can do that below ground or they can do it um, on a leaf surface or on a, on a flower or on a fruit. So, yeah, I've sort of dabbled with a whole range of different species. That's really cool. So you can actually have fungi that maybe spread as spores and things like that on like above ground level. Because I've never, like when I think about it, I just think of like little mushrooms and stuff in the soil. But I suppose that makes perfect sense that they're actually on the above ground level part, part that we can see. Yeah, that's right. So, so probably the majority of species would be um, airborne. Well, not the majority, but at least half, I would say. And we have many examples of those. So rust fungi are one example, but a lot of the moulds as well. So, you know, if you have a bowl of strawberries or a packet of strawberries in your fridge and they start to go fuzzy and grey, that's Botrytis cinerea. And that um, has airborne spores, conidia, which spread from crop to crop or, you know, into your fruit bowl. And so, yeah, they, they don't – they can survive – overwinter in the soil but they tend to live most of their life cycle above above ground what is a rust fungus like is that because i'm just thinking of like a rusty pipe or whatever but is that because of what it looks like yeah. or how it spreads yep it's it's due to the color oh, okay. so it's a it's the most complex type of fungal species we know yeah um the rust fungi are a type of basidiomycete so if you, if you think of a mushroom they're actually closely related to mushrooms, even though they look completely different. But they have five spore stages, and one of those spore stages is the same as what you find in a, in a mushroom. So one of their spore stages is bright yellow-orange, and it does look like the leaf has a bit of rust on it. Wow. But if you touch it, you'll notice that loads of spores just go everywhere. Yeah, that's very cool. I'm always interested in how those things are like named, because for me, I'm so literal that I'm like... Ah, there's like fungi coming from rust. (laughs) Thanks for explaining. Can plants know whether a fungus is good or bad and sort of react in particular ways to that? Or is that why we need to help them? They can't really do that on their own. They totally know. And they know just as well as our bodies know if we get uh, a microbe arriving on our skin surface or into a wound or something like that. So they have very intricate signalling and um, perception, um, I guess, Um, mechanisms so they'll have um, receptors so when a fungus lands on a a leaf or starts to interact with a a plant cell whether it's the roots or the leaf or the stem they will produce a certain compound and like an elicitor and that will be detected by the plant cell and the plant cell receptors the receptor will then determine what the response is from the plant so if it's a pathogen and if the host plant is resistant it will quickly initiate a battery of defenses and seal off the wall or you know any other way you you think about it it's it's chemical defense or it's a physical defense Um, whereas if it's a um, if it's a beneficial so in the case of mycorrhiza the plant will actually prevent those those actions taking place and it will initiate a a relationship to form so it will actually welcome the, the fungus in. That's pretty cool. So essentially the plant in the negative type with a potentially dangerous pathogen, it wages like its own kind of immune response, similar to like how our body would. Um, yep, that's that, right. Yeah, I've always wondered like what kind of things can a plant do when it experiences something that's a particular threat? Because I mean, it can't 
go anywhere. <laughs> um, exactly. It like, can't does run. it essentially just die? <laughs> does it just goes, okay, this is bad, bye. Or okay. are there a bunch of different ways yep. it responds? So, so there's, just like us as individuals and having, you know, different genetics um, of susceptibility to certain diseases, plants have a very sophisticated range of genetics in terms of how they respond to pathogens. So we could have um, in uh, a very simple case where we have a pathogen that it has an interaction with the plant controlled by one or two, a small number of genes in the plant, then the plant as an individual will either be susceptible or resistant. Um, in a susceptible case, the, the, the plant will become infected, but with the resistant plant, it will initiate those defences and protect itself. So in terms of what it can do, it can um, localise the pathogen by quickly forming compounds like subarin, um, chitons. It can produce phytoalexins, so fungal toxic compounds. And it can also um, kill a bit of itself off. So for example, like those rust fungi, they actually they need the plant to stay alive. They actually feed off living cells. So the plant's defence to that is actually to kill off a few of its own cells to give that fungus nothing to feed on. That sounds really interesting and very adaptive to essentially what it's doing. So there's always more than meets the eye with plants, I think. And I've definitely learned so much about that with you know, Kate and Kelsey from our team who are big plant nerds, I would say. Hope you're enjoying the show. Stick with us, folks, and we'll delve more into how Kara conducts her research and the implications of her findings. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking about the interactions between plants and fungi. My name is Hannah McCleary and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Cara Barry from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture. So Cara, a focus of your research is how to maximise the good relationships between fungi and plants and minimise the bad ones. So what sort of things have you found so far to help you achieve this? Okay, so for example... I suppose if we're talking about the, the good fungi, mycorrhiza are, are a really fantastic example because they're generally present in the soil anyway. And then it's about whether they have access to suitable plant roots to interact with. So um, if we want to maximise mycorrhiza, which are ultimately going to help with plant production, then we need to create an environment that's good for them. So we want to avoid things that are going to disturb them. So we want to avoid things like... Um, uh, digging up the soil a lot. We want to avoid actually too much synthetic fertiliser as well because if they get synthetic fertiliser, well, if the plant has access to that, it actually doesn't need the fungi anymore. It, it stops associating with them because there's no point it associating with them and giving the fungi a whole lot of their sugars in response or in exchange for something they don't need because they're getting it easy access. Um, so, yeah, reducing synthetic fertilisers and what we would call low-input agriculture where we have um, lower use of pesticides, uh, synthetic fertilisers and so on. Um, another thing that we can do is actually in amongst our crops we can grow other species down on the ground level. So things like ground covers, um, we can grow species that associate really well with mycorrhiza and they keep those mycorrhizal fungi alive and happy in the soil. So there's a range of things we can do like that. That sounds really cool that you're 
essentially like something I've always been really interested in is how you can have complementary crop cycles that is actually helping to replenish the soil and things like that it seems like um uh, to some extent and obviously I'm not an expert in this but we moved away from that for mass production and now we're being like oh actually we need to consider the complex ways soil creates the perfect environment for the plants to actually have a high yield and it sounds fascinating because that's like kind of what you're talking about with your work but how complex is it when like no two plants probably have the same microbial or relationship with a fungus so is it do you tend to focus on specific crops or am I completely off base there and is it actually your findings are generalized onto lots of different types of crops that are of a similar family or something uh, I think that the things that I've been talking about are very much general. There's specific examples where you might find that one plant species is quite different in how it behaves. But but generally, when we're talking about mycorrhiza or we're talking about mould pathogens, there's very similar um, issues. That's awesome. So is that kind of one of the reasons you focused on this area? Because it can have quite generalisable findings. Uh, I mean, all plants have a range of pathogens that um, cause damage to them. It's just the way the world works. So, you know, we might have a rust pathogen and it, and there'll be, you know, thousand plant species that are susceptible to a rust of some sort. So there's just some generic, um, I guess, um, rules which we can use. So once we learn the basic skills of plant pathology, we can then direct that to different problems. So in one crop, it might be a mould pathogen, that's the biggest issue. And in another crop, it might be a rust pathogen that's a big issue. In another one, it might be a root rot. But we can understand that the tools and the, uh, I guess, the the basic list of ideas around solutions and just apply them to those different situations. So in my work, I will see what the biggest issues are for the industries that surround us and that are in southern Tasmania. So um, in cherries, it tends to be fruit moulds, same in grapevines, um, in blueberries at the moment, the rust is the biggest issue. So I just turn my skills to whatever the challenge is, I suppose. That's awesome. And so something you touched on what my next question was, was how important place is for the types of pathogens or fungi that you would expect. So um, do you think that, you know, being very focused on southern Tasmania is quite important because the climate and things like that would impact the types of fungi that are around or again is that the right way or the wrong way to look at it (laughs) no that's true so it's a bit of a combination between climate suitability for the crops that we grow so you know we don't grow cotton because it's not suitable here for it so we tend to grow a lot of perennial horticulture crops so those temperate loving crops and and then it's the um the pathogens of those that also like this environment. So you tend to find that you get um, uh, relationships forming where you've got, you know, they're, they're all in an environment that's suitable for them. And then you're looking at the balance of how can we make the environment slightly less suitable for the pathogen and slightly better for the for the crop. So things like irrigation, we've got to be really careful not to over-irrigate because if we um, keep the soil or the canopy of the plant too wet the fungi will love that so we tend to use you know drippers in the soil instead so we can target the water straight to the plant roots and not put it all around the place but in terms of you know specific environments we even look at really at microclimates so within even a single orchard you can have 
um, a part of the orchard that's close to a river or in a shady part and we find that's where the pathogens love it. So we've got to think about um, the environment and then how that can be managed differently across one particular orchard. Yeah, wow. So it sounds like really place-based um, and specific to every individual farm. So do you work quite closely with industry when you're coming up with, or with farmers when you're coming up with solutions or do you also do things in the lab where you're looking at the interactions between pathogens yep. or positive and seeing how you manipulate it? Yeah, so we tend to, I guess, um, work quite closely with industry and um, keep in check with what their issues are. So they may have a an issue which presents in the field and it might be, for example, okay, this particular pathogen, we found it so much more invasive this year. We found so much more of it this year. What? Why could that be? So in a project we did uh, about two years ago, we investigated um, the, the genetics of the pathogens there and we actually found that um, a lot of the individuals were developing fungicide resistance. So a bit like antibiotic resistance, same idea. So we could um, genotype the pathogens, look at the genes controlling, um, I guess, their susceptibility to a particular fungicide and see that there'd been some mutations. So that, that was bringing a field-based problem into the lab and using molecular skills to, to do that. That's really cool. So then do you do the flip side of that too where you do some solutions-driven um, based stuff in the lab and then see if that translates to the field where maybe the environment's more complex because we can obviously control things in the lab or is it more trying to unpack what you see, something that's new in the field? Yeah, it's more trying to unpack what you see in the field. Um, I, I don't think we, you know, we're, we're not developing new fungicides, for example, that, that's really industry's job to do that. We're more trying to understand and then come up with better management solutions. Stick with us for part three as we delve more into Cara's work and uh, the broader implications that it has. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Hannah and I'm joined by Dr Neve Chapman and today we're interviewing Cara Barry, an Associate Professor at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture. Uh, so Cara, um, what role does your work play in sort of the biosecurity and Tasmanian produce area of plants and fungi and that sort of thing? Yep, so we um, do have a particular project at the moment looking at a pathogen called blueberry rust and that came into the state in about 2014. It was then eradicated but it came back and and Biosecurity Tasmania are now managing I think it's up to nine properties now that have had an, what we call an incursion and a, a detection there but the state government is determined to continue restricting that pathogen and not allow it to become widespread. So um, we're doing a project looking at um, organic options as crop protectants to control the rust because there's currently quite a few uh, conventional fungicides available, but for organic growers, they don't have any um, many options. So we, we fu- had that project funded to try and really support the organic sector so that if one of the organic growers got the detection on their property, they had some options. Um, so what would those options look like? Because that's always been something that's fascinated me of like people are really interested in having organic produce, um, but that it's really challenging to do that because how do you protect your crops from 
um, you know, potentially pathogenic things that reduce your yield. So what types of things do you think about for that type of setting? What do you mean by an organic option? So by organic, I mean certified organic products. Mm-hmm. So we might, we, we're trialling a range at the moment, things like EcoCarb. Um, we're trialling some oils as well and just some other products that um, – are certified organic by the sector. So they still can be quite active as fungicides. They tend to be a little bit less effective than a conventional product, which is really targeted. Um, but they can, yeah, they can still be sprayed on and provide some protection of the crop from the arrival of spores. That's really interesting. So when you or your team are coming up with this kind of approach, is it often that like industry or in this case, uh, like biosecurity has many identify a problem and come to you and um, it then becomes quite a collaborative approach. What's yeah. been your experience to date of working with like Tasmanian farmers or um, the agricultural sector in general to um, increase output in what it seems to be like a booming industry? Like it seems like there's high demand for Tasmanian products, but obviously with that there's pressure to maintain quality and output. Yeah, so it, it's really, really rewarding working closely with industry. So if we can understand their issues in detail then we can design research projects that actually really get to the heart of the problem and then hopefully lead to outcomes that can you know directly assist them so we don't go to them with a solution we ask what the problem is first and then we tailor the research to them so that anything we find can just be directly applicable sometimes it means that we don't need to do particularly novel science. We might just need to spend a lot more time understanding the problem and look at it from different angles. So as a woman in STEM, from my perspective, um, generally like some of our listeners don't work in science, but there's, uh, as an academic or a researcher, there's a lot of pressure to publish. But to work with industry, particularly to use like pragmatic solutions, sometimes that's not necessarily considered very new or very innovative, but actually applying it to that context is very useful and it's what's needed. How do you go about doing that, like, as a researcher of, you know, having the time to engage with industry, documenting that, publishing it, using it as a research method? Because for me, that sounds awesome. It's closely aligned to what I'd like to do, pragmatic solutions for people at work. But I don't really often think that the system we're in supports that approach. Yeah, within our institute, we really emphasise that. Um, We make an effort to attend industry workshops, industry conferences. We have an industry advisory board um, and so on. So we we really emphasise that. Also, you know, yes, we want to publish research and we want high quality research outputs, but we also want to see that impact on the ground. And that now is being measured and considered um, a lot more important in some regards. I think that the value and the value of um, industry engagement and finding industry solutions is being recognised a lot more clearly now. So, for example, the way that research is evaluated and almost kind of scored across Australia is in a system called Excellence in Research for Australia, or ERA. And previously, that was very much based on traditional outputs. So, for example, journal papers, books, book chapters and so on. However, now there's a lot more emphasis on non-traditional outputs. So they might be um, something that's a commercialised product. It might be 
um, industry engagement and attendance at industry conferences. That's so awesome that's, that it's like directly yeah. supporting something that we would have considered non-traditional, but actually it's like the reason we're doing science usually yeah. is to address a real public need problem or an industry problem that we can see as real world. Yep, um, that's right. And what we're aiming to do really is to have a have a step change in productivity in whatever sector it is. So for me, it's agriculture, it might be engineering, it might be you know fisheries, but looking at things that can actually really provide on-ground solutions and a step change in productivity. And we need to understand the fundamental science, but we also need to know how to get that out there and make mm. a difference with it. So have you found that um, like engaging with industries required like a different skill set? Like To me, that's something I really enjoy because I enjoy talking to people and getting out and about and making those relationships and networking people together. But um, I also enjoy being at my desk and thinking about problems and doing data analysis. So do you find that um, you know, you're further along in your career that makes that you're more engaging with industry more often and uh, has that skill set or that change throughout your career um, been surprising or like particularly rewarding? Yep. No, it's it's been really rewarding to develop those skills more and more. So the, I think the confidence as well to, to listen to industry partners, not to feel that you have to have the answers straight away. As a, as a younger scientist I suppose I probably felt that pressure that I had to know what the answer was and now I realize I don't have to know all I have to do is be interested listen carefully and then go away and think about it and come back to them and keep coming back to them and and keep asking them more questions because if I don't understand their challenges I can't help them. Mm. And do you find generally that when working with industry, they're actually quite responsive to that? Like you might suggest something that doesn't exactly solve the problem and generally on board to try and solve it again. Because that's been my experience with industry is that they understand that it takes a long time to build up solutions that really work. Yeah, definitely. And it really also depends on the urgency of the problem. Yeah. If it's a, if it's a long-term issue that they would love to solve, but they you know know that it might never happen, I think they're you know, that that's okay. We can go back, we can keep trying. Um, if it's an urgent problem, then we really do need to take the time to get it right, to find out clearly what exactly is the issue. Because we could we could sort of misinterpret what the issue is and go off on a tangent and do something that's not actually going to help. Whereas if we fully understand the issue and we say, well, well, why was it this way this year and it was different last year? What are all the variables? And so the the farmer might think they know what the problem is, but we actually have to step back with them and say, well, could it actually have been five other things? Mm, doing <laughs> so, a bit of detective work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Particularly with plant pathology, it's a lot of detective work. Yeah, I think it's just such an enjoyable part of science that we have all these skills and actually taking a few steps back and using those as a detective to solve problems is probably the thing that's most exciting for me and it sounds like it's a huge part of your work. So thanks so much for coming in and also thanks again for being part of the Diversity in STEM Gallery which people can find online and view and see the other 47 participants as well. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I've certainly learned a lot from our expert guest, Associate Professor Cara Barry and thanks to Hannah McCleary for organising today's episode and co-hosting with me. If you liked it, please get in touch with us on social media. Just search That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. This program program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. 
Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.